in this episode. It's the future, robots are in charge, and the world is an artificial reality. Yes, yes, you need a car to go to the cinema, but you don't want to park your three-door hatchback next to you in the auditorium. It's it, like the Terminator. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, and it has predestination on its side. And I think this is one of the key points of our problem. If you're not happy, just go out and do whatever is you need to be happy. Get married, have some kids, working on a meal to have that night. So, I've scientifically proved there is an afterlife. Oh yes, and how did you do that? Hand wavium. Now let's get on with the philosophy. And you're doing, you're tidying up the house and doing a bit of ironing at the same time. If you're going to have the opportunity to have a vending machine full of fetuses, why are you not going to take people up on that? We've got to have a vending machine full of fetuses. I'm just going to, I'm just going to throw my lasso around you. It doesn't matter. I'm sitting here, by taking crazy pills here? You just told us. It doesn't matter. It's like, okay, I get it. Humans bad. Capitalism bad. I get it, I get it. I get it. No, I th- I th- and I think you've hit the nail uh, once again on the head. Well, the genie's out the bottle. Someone else is going to start poking around the brains of the cadavers and find their way into the afterlife as well sooner or later. Komodo may do the same thing, but of course they're on the radio. And as long as you don't let them start wars or discuss politics, everyone's happy. I don't care whether you want to get paid or not, you've got to get paid! problem and in the spirit of beardiness this is not a jokey comedy thing that i'm using at the start of a show for some life humor this is actually a genuine problem that i have uh, way back in the day of uh, our podcast did the top five films of the 90s and out of four of us i think three of us all picked the matrix and i suppose you can look back at it and go well it's dated these days at the same time though we all applauded for having high concepts within there and managing to package it into a satisfying action movie In some regards, I don't feel we've ever been able to get better than that again. Any time we've tried to go a bit more deeper than The Matrix did in its science fiction and philosophical leanings, it hasn't fared well. And when we go less, it feels a bit brainless than we've been here before. So I I lay down the kind of gauntlet of going, The Matrix is kind of like the ceiling, isn't it? First of all, as science fiction and film goes. In saying that... You've placed before us uh, many conundrums because what you've uh, attempted, your position here is that The Matrix is the ultimate expression of science fiction cinema. Uh, So the best way to discern whether this has any truth to it is to first of all uh, examine the proposition that The Matrix is cinema uh, and then maybe to examine the proposition that it's science fiction – and thereby understand exactly what we mean by saying that The Matrix is the pinnacle of cinematic science fiction. It's definitely a film, it has a three-act drama, it has a character arc. Uh, As far as science fiction goes, it's virtual reality, it's artificial intelligence, it does have philosophical leanings of beings and purpose and things like that, which are expanded upon in much greater lengths in the the sequels. Even leaving aside the kind of, the, the leanings of the first film about predestination and things like that, there's definitely a, like, you, you can hang on to it's the future, robots are in charge, and the world is an artificial reality. Uh, well, yeah, but then we've got Minority Report. That's uh, pretty deep and also very cinematic. Essentially, where we want to traverse in this is, first of all, by the same token, uh, a film from a few years ago starring Ethan Hawke, Predestination, is a movie that examines some pretty deep science fiction concepts, but if we were to agree that it wasn't in the same ballpark as either Minority Report or The Matrix, it would be that it is less cinematic. And so that's the question that we're going to pose first of all. Why is something like Predestination less cinematic? 
cinematic than The Matrix? And the answer would clearly be visual. And I think this is one of the key points of our problem. Cinema is above everything else a visual art form. Now, television is also a visual art form, but the screen is a lot smaller. There's been some bleed in the last few years because of the increased quality available of televisions and all the 4K stuff. But the the fact is that the job of the pictures in television is to help you make sense of what you're hearing. So essentially, television could be seen as a medium which is radio with pictures. At the pinnacle of trying to tread people through a number of steps in a kind of linear fashion is audio only. Like when you listen to something, then you've got like books turning into audio books and then into radio plays and all the tricks that radio plays use to uh, help you follow something you can't see. Well, then when you put television into it, you can see what you're hearing uh, and therefore you have to be less specific in the sound. Like if you watch a television show with the picture off or with your eyes closed or whatever, there are going to be bits where I'm not quite sure what's going on here and then you take a further step into cinema on uh Kermode Mayo, they have these press released clips which if you were on a movie show they would show you the clip Komodo Mayo do the same thing but of course they're on the radio and what I always find quite notable is if it's a film that I listen to the review of and then go and see I didn't picture it looking anything like this when they were doing that bit of dialogue that is where we were at. It's like the, the fact is that often what you see when you think the audio is to a certain extent, and this is consistent with the history of cinema, a visual medium where the sound helps to deepen the picture. That's the point of cinema is that you look at it. Yes, yeah, I would agree because it has a higher budget per minute than television does. Uh, cinema is definitely about spectacle. I would 100% agree with that. Television's strength is drama, and drama, as I said before, is two people standing in a room talking urgently. And that's what television does very well. You don't want to see that in cinema. Like I say, if you can, if you can put a film on, and you're doing, you're tidying up the house and doing a bit of ironing at the same time, the film is not holding your attention, and the film is therefore, on some level, failing you. I do find it somewhat difficult. I would, later in the season, we're going to be discussing uh, Batman, and Gotham, for example, is not, in the sense of which you've just said, is not great television because uh, it's fantastic television. You want to look at it as much as you want to listen to it. And that's kind of not the point, although these days it kind of is the point. Event television is a thing, but you are quite right. You're quite right in what you say that most of the time people want to be able to, to dip in and out of television. What we've done is we've created a poll, and at one end of the poll is audio content, and the other is visual content. And obviously radio sits squarely on the audio end. There isn't really a medium, although I suppose actually games would... Actually games are exactly that. Now that's quite interesting, and not something I was expecting to even touch on. But games are largely visual, yeah. I mean, the sound in a game is literally there to support your experience of what you're seeing on the screen. I mean, ultimately, of course, it would be totally immersive and you'd be in sort of VR kind of area. Even on a TV screen, uh, I think because of the interactive element that the games have, it, it is supposed to be the focus of your attention. I mean, unless you're playing World of Warcraft, you can't particularly be doing anything else whilst you're playing it. Yes, and it is. So therefore, it's, it's supposed to immerse you. And I think that visually, like you can play a video game with the sound off, Although many studies suggest that this is not the ideal way to do it, but you can't play it just by sound. Uh, If you did, it would be an experimental video game. So video games are entirely visual. I think possibly this may, and therefore is. I'm making a note now in our future shows, that obviously we know games and movies have had, you know, their relationship status on Facebook is it's complicated. Is this a possible reason why? Is the fact that Games are too visual. We'll just have to leave that as a question. Cinema, though, certainly isn't far along the, from the visual end. Uh, it definitely has, I mean, probably even maybe dead centre. It is the, 
no, I don't think that's even true. I think it would be off centre. I think the dead centre form of entertainment is television. If you have a different relationship, television is a much longer commitment of your time if you're, if you're, if you're committing to a series. Whereas a film is just a good afternoon out and everyone has a jolly time. And you also pay, time a, factor, yes. you also pay a premium for film entertainment, which you don't necessarily for television. Yeah, well, although that is starting to disappear, as which will become part of our conversation later on in the show that you necessarily will be paying an added stipend to go and watch a film in the cinema but certainly the time commitments are kind of different as well although technically what me watching a movie only takes a couple of hours i have to go to a special building ideally to spend that couple of hours watching that movie and you know then there's the stipend and so on whereas television takes up a lot more of my time can be Seasons and seasons of content, but I can shove it on a, a, a generic tablet device and have it streaming straight there while I'm doing the dishes. So the time that you spend consuming television isn't quite as demanding on your attention. But yeah, to, to revisit the well, the perfect balance between audio and visual in a form of entertainment or art would be something where if you listen to just the sound, you'd get some of it. And if you watch the pictures alone, you'd get some of it, but you need them both together. And in fact, therefore, I would say cinema is the closest to the middle. Because if you just watch the pictures of television, I think you miss out on most of the content. Because if you just listen to the words, you might not need the pictures per se. To return to your favourite topic of conversation in these areas, they have taken old Doctor Who television serials and just turned them into audio content with someone, one of the actors, explaining bits that don't make sense if you're not looking at them, and nothing of value was lost. In a way, experiencing the serial that way means that the monsters look much better uh, because you're not actually seeing them, and therefore you can't see the gaffer tape or the rubber or any of the other refinements that might show up, particularly in this age yeah. of much clearer we, reprint We television. did that because they don't exist as episodes anymore. We only have the audio. You strike and mock my wound of the 109 missing Doctor Who episodes. But anyway, my point so, is so why, why, are we, why are we circling around and defining cinema so strongly? Though? Because then when people want to disagree with on the internet they know exactly what they're disagreeing with and what they're disagreeing with is our false polarity which i'm sure from certain points is nonsensical that that these that media are made up of these two poles audio and visual and that, that they fit in different places on that pole and that therefore cinema being the closest to the center of being you can't take half of it out without leaving the other half may present a problem when we come into sci-fi why would that be? Well, now we move into the genre problem. I think, to a certain extent, that it's not so much a genre problem as a problem of fiction. That is, there are certain things that fiction writing is good for and certain things that it's not so good for. And I think this is where the problem begins. Uh, because if you were to ask me, which you're probably not going to, so I'll ask it instead and just fill in the answer. What is the purest form of fiction that does the best job that fiction can do uh, in terms of, I suppose, immersiveness, which is like our third axis? I would argue that your perfect fictional construct is Sherlock Holmes. It's defined the episodic detective genre. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it happens to be a vehicle that it occupies. But if you look at the vast popularity of whodunit fiction, I would argue that the re part of the reason why these kind of whodunit fiction thriller type things is so popular is because even if you're not such a great writer, you are paddling in the pool that most people receive the medium in. It's easier to well, accept the medium in that form. It's the most accessible type of fiction. I mean, Sherlock Holmes is an interesting one because there's only really been four Sherlock Holmes novels. The, most of, the bulk of Sherlock Holmes is essentially uh, yeah, so, yeah. short stories, essentially episodic, essentially a TV episode-length story. 
It's, it, I would say Sherlock Holmes definitely lends itself more towards uh, the television format than the movie format, I would say. I think the reason I pick on Holmes in, in particular is because I could have said Poirot or Miss Marple They're or more Jonathan Freecourt. Um, yeah, and the detective fiction I could have been really generic about. The reason I pick on Sherlock Holmes in particular is because of the elements that make up Sherlock Holmes, e.g. you have the brilliant but troubled detective, you have his sidekick, who's also quite handy, and doctor, in fact. It's sort of the the underlining rationality that Sherlock Holmes is built upon. Yes, the naked, oft-discussed thing that what Sherlock Holmes does is seek out puzzles to solve. In terms of genre fiction, the idea of having some brilliant protagonist who unpicks puzzles with the help of a a sort of a dialogue, it's kind of the rawest form of fiction. And I think it kind of pushes people's psychological buttons for some reason, because if you take a different tack on this and say, well, you know, what is the ultimate expression of fiction? Then you could also argue that Lord of the Rings or indeed uh, secondary world fantasy is that because pure fantasy takes place in places that never were with people that never existed in histories that didn't exist. There's no such thing as anachronism. People can't use the wrong type of sword for the era because you're making the era up as indeed with everything else you are building the whole world but is it the ultimate form of fiction because in order to be into fantasy you have to engage with fantasy to the extent where you accept all of the bits of world that the author has to build and you build it yourself in order to have a common frame of reference detective fiction has no such barrier to entry I really feel we're kind of at a crossroads here because, you know, when you talk about, you know, is cinema the best medium for science fiction? The answer is be, well, what would be a better one? And, and I would say definitely the book is the best medium for science fiction. It's the best medium for high fantasy as well because these genres are highly dependent on world building. And you've got an hour and a half to two hours to tell a film which has to have all the usual A plot, B plot, three act structure, character arc with a bit of a twist towards the end and a nice action showpiece. And and you've got to build all your world in that time. It's very hard, but whereas in a book, you can take several pages of prose to entertainingly just ex- help take your reader by the hand and, and talk them through how this world functions and how it works, which you just can't do in a cinema. I am going to probably surprise almost nobody uh, at this stage in history when I argue that possibly the best medium for for like that kind of secondary world fantasy as of today if i'd have been hosting this podcast which would have been unlikely in the 1970s or 80s then i wouldn't have had this answer i'd have been right with you books as where at possibly comic books graphic art might be a really good uh way of doing it but in fact as of 2019 television is the best medium for secondary world fiction because that barrier to entry that I described of having to agree in a contract with the author to build the world inside yourself is the, the a lot of the legwork is taken out by just slapping it on television, maybe promising some dragons. You know, production design allows you to world build without okay. where people just inhale it. I, Neither I, of us have watched Game of Thrones, have I? I've watched Game of Thrones to death. I, I, I hated Game of Thrones. I was ahead of the curve. I was ahead in the curve on. They've ruined it. Since they've ran off the author's original books, it's just gone completely off the boil. But anyway, that's a complete side measure. I, okay, I, I still disagree with you, precisely because of Game of Thrones. We have this thing where we have the books and we have the TV series. Now, the TV, TV series are, are definitely a much better medium for long-form exploring what a world is like. I totally yes. agree with you there. But a book is still better still because you can go into a lot more minutiae in detail in those books that you just can't in a TV series because a TV series as much as you can take one episode to explore one facet of a world you still have all this plot structure or what have you whereas it can just be an aside in a book it can be details slowly layered upon you in a book a, a book is quite a long form method of storytelling I mean I used to work in audio books you know you, you can devour a book by reading it to yourself in like a, a day 
even a good old tombstone of a book. Like I got nieces and nephews, you give them a book and they will chew it to death overnight. Uh, but if you actually sit down and read an audio book out loud, we used to have actors that used to have to come in four days straight, morning and afternoon, reading a book. And once you were done, you would have 14 cassette tapes. This is way back in the day, people, of this audio book sitting there. Book, it's almost like a zip file. It's a very concentrated medium for giving lots of information to you in, in, a, in a nice steady pace. And also because its overheads are less, it can, it can afford to be more niche. It can really lead your reader onto very long winding paths down the thought lanes you've laid for yourself in your hypotheticals of your science fiction slash fantasy world, which you can't do on television. I agree, television is far better. And, I, and television is also very approachable. You know, it's an everyman medium. I don't think books necessarily are an everyman medium, I'm sorry to say. Not these days. What you've done, though, is you've laid out all the ways in which you might wish to measure the success of, of fiction. And I, of course, am coming at the grabby capitalist version of if we want the maximum number of bums on seats for a given level of fiction, or, or just, just generally, what is the best approach to that? To which I would still, I mean, I think this is the thing. Detective fiction works as books, and people still read detective fiction books. Detective fiction works as radio serials, and people who listen to radio serials are not averse to listen to murder mysteries in that format. Do they work as television shows? Darn tooted. Do they work as films? Ah, well, no. Not really, because film is about spectacle, whereas detective fiction is about sort of a mental puzzle given to you by the author. Movies are no longer about that. But then, then the other thing is the spoiler culture. Apart from adaptations of famous Agatha Christie things, I don't really remember a movie where there was like some kind of whodunit aspect there's lots of these movies. That, I mean, basically, you're talking about the mystery genre. There's plenty of films which are mystery based. I mean, I don't think they're necessarily in vogue now at the moment, but there, there have been plenty of them in the past. There's a lot of novel adaptations, you know, like all the sort of Alex Cross stuff and and all of that kind of thing. But I think that whodunitness is like um, the love interest. It can be a feature. You can have a whodunit angle to a lot of different movies without making the movie about that in the same way that you can have a, a romantic interest a angle in a movie without having the movie be about that either. Uh, as well as which, because we're talking about the twist, the twist doesn't necessarily have to be the revelation of a whodunit. The twist can be lots of a who is it or you know other things. There are other things. Well, uh, you remember, of course, the thing that uh, someone put forth that I said, this is kind of describes what the twist is. You have like an A and a B, a thing A and a thing B, and the twist is always revealed that although you thought A and B were separate, they are in fact the same thing, and that's every twist ever. I mean, this sort of examination of what fiction is and what job it does, does give the light to that, because necessarily for a piece of detective fiction, for a whodunit in the classic then to be quote-unquote fair, the solution cannot be a deus ex machina. Because if it turns out, and then they went into a room and there was some bloke nobody had ever seen before, he went and he had blood all over his hands, he went, oh, it must be him. And they went, yes, they were right. Then the person's like, well, I've been trying to work out if it was the maid or if it was the doctor from Austria or if it was other thing. And it turns out it was none of those people. It was another person entirely who had no connection to any of it. That would be a pretty rubbish murder mystery. Although, I'm pretty sure I heard somewhere that Agatha Christie didn't do that one a couple of times. But then, obviously, she did so many. So, you know, you're going to have to hit on the rubbish one occasionally. I'm just um, going to throw my lasso around you and I'm going to drag you and go, what's this got to do with science fiction? We've gone to these uh, polls where we're saying, look, fiction as a, a whole thing. Detective fiction works fine in all mediums. And indeed... What you're quite correct about is, if you did choose to make the Who Done It a feature of the movie as people used to in the past, you can make a perfectly cinematic Who Done It. I think possibly in these days it's seen as thin soup, and that's why they don't really hit on that as the main nail. It's not a big budget thing, in. no. It's not. It, it's been no, more like we've exactly. got some quite famous actors and we've got some period costumes. Let's do a whodunit. Well, indeed, and, and thrillers themselves are like you know, like they have to have a thing that is going to pull people in from the beginning. Like he, 
he's a man who can only remember the last 20 minutes or he's a person who follows people about at random because he's an actor researching parts and then so with it, this Hitchcockian idea like the Hitchcock idea was there has to be some immediately engaging gimmick and that has become what the thriller is about whereas the whodunit then becomes a feature but you could do it cinematically I mean you argued that for high fantasy wasn't great in the cinema and I I take it that your your wounds are still fresh from Warcraft on that basis. I can talk to you about that. I mean, they didn't start on their strongest story, put it that way. Uh, they should have started with what I assume was going to be their third movie. Yes, I wasn't particularly impressed with Warcraft. My main criticism can be summed up very simply as, well, they did a very good job of making the orcs very relatable. It's a shame all the CGI humans, you couldn't tell them apart. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that you've got a point. You have to be fiendishly clever to make a good fantasy movie. And even if you kind of succeed, at first it may look like you failed. I'm talking, of course, about Chronicles of Riddick director's cut. Now, technically, that's a science fiction movie. But really, it's totally not a science fiction movie. What's it got to do with science? Absolutely nothing. Uh It's a fantasy movie that happens to have science spaceships in it. Yes, we're getting to science fiction. Yeah, that's a fantasy movie that's a very good fantasy movie because it does its job, it gets in and out, it does the world building. And I think that the main thing that people didn't get with it was that it was dressed up in science fiction rubber nose. With it. And it's like, if you accept it as a fantasy movie, then it's a really good fantasy movie. It does all the jobs that it's supposed to to do it it makes you know like these grand statements and goes into the high fantasy area and necromongers and all of this kind of stuff and when vin diesel walks you around the set on the dvd extras they've put all these this is the big problem of course they've put all these little details into the background i mean the reverse of that is in blade 2 where at one stage there's a face-off between the vampires and blade and his cohorts and there's a vending machine full of fetus that's in the set and on the commentary they say well you know Guillermo is like if you're going to have the opportunity to have a vending machine full of fetuses why are you not going to take people up on that we've got to have a vending machine full of fetuses what does the vending machine do with the fetuses why is it there nobody knows it just happened to be there that's bad because even though it's fun it doesn't tell you anything it doesn't build the world doesn't build the world I know. Just, just, I mean, I don't, I don't want to cut you off mid-flow. I was defining science fiction, proper science fiction, as it's classically defined as, it's, it's, it's a man's relationship between himself and his tools. Now we're talking about, not about mm. science fiction, we're talking about sci-fi. Guardians of the Galaxy is sci-fi, because it has spaceships and aliens. Riddick is sci-fi. Things like, uh, Event Horizon. It's not really science fiction, is it? Because we don't really go through the implications of what ha- having a, a wormhole drive no, is. No, and I think you've hit the nail uh, once again on the head, is that in a proper work of science fiction, you take a science fictional idea such as time travel, and we're going to come back to time travel uh, because people always come back <laughs> to the future. But, yeah, but because time travel is such a key part of cinema, for for very obvious reasons. Yeah, when you look at something like that, you you follow through the implications. In fact, time travel pictures are a subgenre of science fiction in cinema that is unfeasibly successful because they happen to fall at, at a place where cinema and science fiction meet. In fact, Predestination, that I talked about earlier as being a pretty successful science fiction movie, is a time travel movie. And that is why it's one of the reasons why it gives an advantage. This is the thing. I think that all of your things about world building and uh, being allowed to be niche and so on and so forth, these are factors which you, dimensions that you could take into account. If you're doing a top trumps of fictional genres, these are factors that are on the card that you can compare genres on. But where I'm getting to the key heart of it is that I think detective fiction is the best. It has the, it's the best card. If you've got detective fiction in your hand, you'll win that trick every time you play Top Trumps. Science fiction is a lot, lot weaker just as a genre, I think. And I think, actually, pure fantasy of the Lord of the Rings is weaker still. Mm-hmm. I think it's possibly the weakest type of accessible fiction because it is all niche. 
Um, I mean, it demands that the fan does quite a lot lot of work. Like, what are we doing today? You know, every time you have a magical system in a fantasy novel, it has to make some kind of rational sense to the person reading the book, but it's never the same as the other ones they've seen. It might share some broad kind of similarities, but it's it's not the same. And that is very demanding. And one of the reasons why I picked on detective fiction is because it's simultaneously not demanding and quite immersive. Obviously, going to... read Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Likeness of Being. That's not demanding in the sense that it's supposed to happen in the world, but it is demanding in the sense that you are not sure what the point of the story is. And that's the thing. That's where I'm coming at. It's like, is it demanding on the audience to actually do some work to build up to know what's happening and to follow it along? And when you are reading the story, although you, the world might be a technically our world, do you know why the story is being told? And detective fiction is the perfect melange of both of these. It takes place in the real world. Check. Do we know why the story is telling? Well, somebody's dead and somebody else is trying to find out who killed them and why. And those, it's very clear. And that is why detective fiction is so accessible. Minority Report is a whodunit. Yes, it is. It is a, a whodunit. And we're going to, Philip K. Dick is very interesting because he is the science fiction author who has been most su- successful in getting concepts mm. across onto the screen. Blade Runner so, is, is hard science fiction. Come on. Uh, yes, cyberpunk is a very interesting sidebar here. Science fiction in its purest form is about science and about taking an idea and extrapolating the consequences of that idea yes. existing. So, yes. if you take something like 1984, that's not really science fiction, that's futurism. That's taking, the, like, you're, you're taking a specific idea, that is the state of the world, politics, the world way the world is set up and what you understand about the factions at play and how that impacts on the common man. And you're extrapolating, well, if we go down this path, this is what's likely to end up happening. That's just sort of that speculation. Minority Report, in fact, has a healthy dose in its cinematic form of futurism. The Philip K. Dick short story upon which the movie is based isn't really futuristic. What it's saying is, you know, if we had psychics who were predicting crime, how could we get around that? Which is a different sort of a philosophical this is the thing scientists really hate philosophy because science was supposed to have taken over the job of philosophy but philosophy for some reason won't die it still exists well you need philosophy you need philosophy to get to science yes yes you need a car to go to the cinema but you don't want to park your three-door hatchback next to you in the auditorium without philosophical axioms (laughs) You can't build a body of science. Yes, yes, I know. I think scientists hate philosophy in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way. In that it's like, because the border is so soft, scientific rigour depends on taking those bits of philosophy which are useful to the scientific method and sticking with them, and the rest of philosophy needs to stay outside where it belongs. And the fact that it still exists and appears even maybe in some cases to to be useful for some things is very irksome to people who just want to devote their mind to science. And in fact, our science fiction box is that same thing where we're talking about scientific ideas and trying to extrapolate what that is. I'm thinking about major science fiction works as we know them. Scientists don't like the philosophical underpinnings, but I think all the famous pieces of science fiction I can think of have all had very profound questions about what, what implication does this have for humanity now we have this thing. And, and what does it mean to be human? Now we have this thing that we've invented. It changes the, the nature of our entire world. So a philosophical reflection is a necessity of the, the, the science fiction supposal. I think there's some kind of uncertainty principle, and I do mean that in the scientific sense, that is occurring in these uh, arenas. You, if you try and take a read on sciencey science fiction automatically, like you say, Minority Report has a, a whodunit feature in amongst all its futurism and, and what have you. That's because Spielberg wants to make a movie people are going to want to see and it kind of, oh, wait a second, people love a whodunit. Which they do. Um, so, wait, right, so, 
We now have our two pillars. So we're asking, you know, what's going on? We have to ask ourselves a question. What would a really smart science fiction movie look like? Ian, smartest science fiction movie that's ever been made. You're allowed to even say, just let's go with The Matrix. But what what, what do you think is the smartest science fiction film you've ever seen? The Matrix, in some ways, you know, you say Minority Report was about uh, whodunit meets science fiction, or I suppose, a blend. The kind of audience grabber with The Matrix was it was kind of superheroes meets science fiction, because The Matrix is a world in which superheroes basically exist. The Wachowskis described it as Kung Fu versus robots. That's how they described the project. All the other stuff was just what we in the programming trade called syntactic sugar. The thing is, we say, what, what's the greatest science fiction movie we've ever made? I'd Not greatest, see- smartest, the most clever sciencey science fiction movie that you've ever seen. Uh, I suppose it's always that you always get a nice personal glow when they try and get how space works right in some film. Um, right. Um, I did put in the notes here, 2001 would be the obvious thing to well, reach that, 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 for. That, that, that didn't occur to me, but again, that is a very philosophical film. But by and large, there isn't really a lot of story to 2001. I wouldn't say it was smart. I wouldn't say 2001 was necessarily accessible. I think, I think the millennial generation would be bored shitless watching 2001. Yeah, but that's the point. But is it smart? No. I think it's art. It's um, art, but it's not smart. I think it's, it's, grand, it's grand. You know, I think it should be a piece of work that should be preserved... For the good of human, humanity's culture. But it isn't one I want to own on a DVD they want to put off the shelves and stick it on because I just want to have the blue Daniel Waltz pumping around my house. I mean, it's, it, I mean, the end of the film is very enigmatic and unexplained and left up to you to figure out for yourself, even if there may be definitive answers there Arthur C. Clarke wanted us to have or not. In order to centre in on some topics for discussion, I think we've now driven the car about as far as we can, and we can look at the things that we're supposed to be looking at. I picked uh, Netflix, you see, has decided that it wants to release movies, where it was one of the things where Netflix does series, and actually a lot of the television series that they've done, quite a fair degree of those ones, uh, have had a a really good degree of success. There are lots of award-winning television. Movies... They're really having a problem with. That rock is not rolling up that hill very quickly whatsoever. And nowhere is it uh, less successful, I would say, than in the genre of things that are supposed to be science fiction. I have to say, this, this list of key texts for me to review for this podcast, I have to, some of it was, was a crawl to get through. In fact, most of it was. I'll save the best for last. Let's start with, I think, possibly the worst title on here. The Discovery. This was attempting in all ways to be super smart. What I discovered in The Discovery was that it is not science fiction. Would you agree with that? It's not science fiction. It also doesn't properly think through the implications of what it's talking about. The key thing about The Discovery is that they have definitively proven there is an afterlife. That's as far as they've gotten. This has started a rash of suicides throughout the world because there is now definitively somewhere else to go to. Not that we know it's better or not. What I merely ran to in frustration with this is just a sense of irritation towards all these people and the first world problems who are offering themselves out of, out of a sense of not having a satisfying enough life. When for goodness me, we have the best living standards humanity has ever had. If you're not happy, just go out and do whatever you need to be happy. Get married, have some kids, work on a meal to have that night. This doesn't make sense. In the past, humanity thought definitively there was an afterlife and we didn't go around mass murdering ourselves just to go and get to what we thought was a definite heaven that definitely existed in in like van damon's life when, when, when australia was a penal colony and we had penal people here who were just living a living prison in a very harsh environment for the rest of their life even then suicide was still taboo the other thing that's missing from the discovery because it talks about how everyone's feeling terribly bummed out about the fact there's definitely an afterlife and, and therefore there might be a better world than this one Religion isn't mentioned once. Surely if you definitively prove there was an afterlife, there would be a massive upswing in interest in religion. Bearing in mind that most most of humanity currently do believes that there is an afterlife. I would say it's a minority of people who are, shall we say, atheistically saying, when you're dead, you're dead. I think most people will kind of assume or hope there was definitely an afterlife. I don't see why the scientists saying there definitely is one is suddenly going to trigger everyone to start throwing themselves off cliffs like lemmings. 
And then apparently there's no further investigation into this new phenomenon called the afterlife. It's left to one crank in a mansion to cobble together some equipment to explore this. This makes no sense. This would be a sudden boom industry. Everyone would be funneling money into this. Can we reach the afterlife? Can we talk to the people who are there? It's, it's like I once had an idea for like this, a similar concept. You know, a scientist discovers there is such a thing as a soul. And my thing was there was murders and suicides, but it was a scientist covering up the discovery at all because once you define there is a soul and it is an energy source, you know, you could be forever murdered once you understand the soul well enough. But this doesn't get anywhere near that. It's like everyone seems to just be bummed out the discovery of an and no one's particularly interested in, in exploring the applications other than this one weird crank who after a short while of poking around and getting some very bothersome revelations, which I would never would have passed as a story editor going, this is kind of a pro-suicide story. You do realise that, don't you? Uh, they just decided to dismantle all the equipment and hope the world never notices. Well, the genie's out the bottle. Someone else is going to start poking around the brains of the cadavers and find their way into the afterlife as well sooner or later. What on earth were you thinking? Apart from that, everyone in there is miserable and expressionless and just kind of mumbles their way through some disconnected scenes until we get to the end. There, I've ranted over. So, I've scientifically proved there is an afterlife. Ah, oh, yes, and how did you do that? Hand wavium. Now let's get on with the philosophy. The philosophy is then half-baked. In fact, it's not even quarter-baked in your right, your rant stand. The point is, I can't use it, because we can't use it, because it's not science fiction. It's philosophy, uh, bad philosophy, masquerading, because they use the word science. Yeah. They expect it to be science fiction. But it's not. Okay, so moving on, we have probably in joint problematic and kind of, mm, there's, see you yesterday and I am mother, I am mother being the newest of them. Did you watch either of these? I want to quickly talk about See You Yesterday because this was actually the last film I watched in preparation. In fact, I watched it shortly before this podcast came on and I stuck it on and started watching it and it's two kids in an alleyway with their backpacks on with their homespun time machines in the back and they're all about to go off and have an adventure and it's like, oh, this seems quite quirky and funny and then you go off into a classroom and she's reading Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking so well, she's built a time machine. She's probably a bit beyond that book but I get that the transcript, she's a, she's, a, she's a brain girl and then 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 Michael J. Fox is there. I thought, oh, right, they're now they're echoing Back to the Future. This is going to be a nice comedy science fiction romp with some teenagers. I'll go get my tea and I'll sit down here and I'll have a nice watch this jolly movie. Oh, my goodness. This is not science fiction. This is about, let's have a serious discussion now about the problem of cops killing young black people in America. That is what this film is about. And it could have been about her finding a magic book on top of a cupboard or learning that she had the magic power to travel back in time. It's completely incidental whether she happens to be a scientist who's invented time machines whatsoever. Uh, it's, it is actually about the problem of cops shooting young black men. Well, this is actually the, the film that prompted the entire thing of this show, which is that the day before we watched that, and the advert does try very hard to make you think it's going to be a light-hearted time travel teen comedy romp, and then it's not. The day before I watched that, I watched Black Klansman. What's really interesting about it is that the end of Black Klansman says, well, shit pretty much the same if you're a black man, to be honest. And it's like, but there's this kind of little glimmer that uh, Spike Lee is very careful during the movie to say, look, this is the 70s. Look at some of the other policemen that the black policeman is working with. And look at Adam Driver's character. There was a time when Spike Lee was very antagonistic towards all white people. But in this, in Black Klansman, he says, look, some people are fine, but there's just the dicks of really bad dicks. And, you know, it happens that some of them are quite important now. So, you know, we just keep our eyes open. But good people do exist. And that's what it says. It says we need those good people to stop the bad people people that's what we need is good people stopping bad people and at that point race isn't an issue it doesn't matter whether the good person is black or white or yellow or what just make sure they're stopping the bad people because that's what i care about so you come out of black hands when it's like yeah it's kind of depressing because like he did all this stuff and it didn't really amount to much because here we are in 2019 and it's all still going off yeah but at the same time what he's saying is you you all need to, to get into this and that's fine well, I see you yesterday, it says, uh, excuse me, young black person, it doesn't matter if you invent time travel. Whitey's still going to shoot you. That's what it says, and you're like, that's not hopeful. They literally had a time machine, and they couldn't stop racism. 
They were the only people on the planet with a time machine and they couldn't stop racism. Yeah. So ultimately, it, she kind of just gives up in the end, doesn't she? She kind of gets rid of a time yeah. machine. Because it starts out and it's like she's built a time machine. It's a bit weird these kids have invented time machines, but it's a world where kids can invent time machines. That's fine. Doc Brown can invent a time machine. So can she. And then she's going to like a science school in the Bronx. So, oh, right, so we've got this kind of, or Harlem, I'm sorry. And it's, so you've got this kind of very positive display of how things are then, because there's literally a science school there where you can store tech parts to build time machines. So this must be, you know, a more up and coming version of the world. And then all of a sudden, no, white cop kill, white cop kill. It's it, like the Terminator. It can't be bargained with, it can't be reasoned with, and it has predestination on its side. Yeah, and this is the thing. I mean, it's it's not so much what the incidents that unfold during the narrative. It's the implication that uh, science cannot assist you in resolving cultural issues. It's like, well, that's not true either. So, in a way, the problems of the discovery and the problems of CES are related in that the philosophy that underlies the scientific plot engine are equally half-baked. It's just that in CUS states, more science And also there is a tonal problem. I Am Mother, did you watch I Am Mother? I saw some parts of the movie, I skipped through the movie, then I read the Wikipedia page, and then I watched some YouTube videos discussing it. So I feel I know I Am Mother. It is a bloody good robot suit. I love that robot suit. I'd love to see more of it. It was great. Uh, but I guess that the, ro- the IA had utterly destroyed humanity within the first five minutes of the film. What is scientific about it? There- there isn't really anything, apart from there being a robot in it. But then the thing about it is, right, this is a film in which at the end, the big reveal is that the robot is just a drone and then there's an AI that controls the drone. And in fact, the same AI controls all the drones. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. all the computers it's, and it's everything. It's basically Skynet. But then at the point where that's revealed, the robot drones on the outside that are cutting through the door don't just stop because that's a charade and then the doors open because the AI is in control of the door. It's what I like to call artificial dumb intelligence. And they're like, well, you haven't got much time once you get there and they get through the door. That's going to be it. You've got to make decisions about the rest of your life right now. By the way, I am not just, this robot is just a shell. I am an AI and I control everything. At which point, when the, the robot knows that the human knows that she's everywhere, then the robot's outside can stop wasting their time cutting through the door because they don't need to because the AI has presence inside and outside and the door itself is controlled presumably by the same intelligence it also doesn't matter if you shoot the robot dead it doesn't matter yeah all it doesn't matter doesn't matter none of it matters and yet the artificial intelligence and the script writers and the director and the actors all persist in this oh they're nearly through the door it's like it doesn't matter i'm sitting here by taking crazy pills here you just told us it doesn't matter and so again that is like a dumb movie that has some science fiction rubber nose on it mute that's a problematic movie and is about the height of uh, why cyberpunk isn't really like has a problematic relationship with science fiction in that it's an aesthetic yes. more than it is and it says, and you try to presume that mankind's technology is going to evolve into people being cyborgs and people having much more powerful personal no, I, computer I, devices and so forth. Cyberpunk has, is, is about alternative culture. That's what it's kind of always been about, isn't it? Or am I wrong? There's a definite aesthetic um, choice to it, which yeah, is neon computers. And, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. all that, but it's also it's the underground culture. It's, it's being uh, it's outsiders. It's people without without a family as such. It's strangers and nightclubs and neon signs and doctors doing surgery in in warehouses. If you compare cyberpunk to steampunk, steampunk is entirely aesthetic. What is the science of steampunk? It is isn't it's all everything's driven by steam okay you know like there isn't really there isn't really a you know steampunk isn't scientific at all it's a variant on fantasy Mm. cyberpunk at least has things where it does talk about artificial intelligences or how cyborg you know how the singularity and the transfer of consciousness between the organic and the digital may come about and how that may affect the way that we experience ourselves as people but also cyberpunk is nihilistic it's about the loss of society and the loss of connection between people as well and so you have a degraded less valuable humans that live there 
And then sometimes it ties that together with our loss of identity. Like if you can't tell the difference between yourself and a blender, then of course society is going to collapse around that. So there are ideas to be talked about. Mute, I think, carefully steps around all of them and is just a neon-soaked kind of crime thriller. Why was was it important that our protagonist couldn't speak? I mean, it was a very amusing idea for a while, but after a while it becomes, it's a bit inconvenient that he can't talk really, isn't it? Although I yeah, it's a shtick, it's a gimmick. Yeah, I, I think of the fact that he's a really good swimmer who spends a lot of time underwater, so I was thinking, the end of the movie's going to involve him holding his breath for a very long time. And lo and behold, that was exactly how he solved the end of the movie. He was able to hold his breath underwater longer than somebody else. Win! Yeah, so there we go. So that's, so I think we've kind of muted his kind of our proxy. This is why cyberpunk is problematic to do his own thing. So, Finally, we come to what is possibly the smartest science fiction movie. One of the smartest science fiction movies that exists. Definitely a science fiction movie. Definitely science-y. Definitely fictional. We're talking about Okja. You must have watched Okja, right? That was the one I had the most trouble with. I had to nope out of it, I'm afraid. And I read the Wikipedia entry on it, and I was like, nope, I don't want to watch this movie. It is an animal cruelty movie. It is a genetically engineered animal. But it's still an animal cruelty movie. And it's like, I just, I just couldn't sit myself through that. I couldn't go watch the new version of Dumbo on the basis it was an animal cruelty movie. It's like, okay, I get it. Humans bad. Capitalism bad. I get it. I get it. I get it. I don't want to see a, la- a nice benevolent large creature maltreated for an hour and a half. I just can't. Why is it science fiction, Leo? Um, it is a pro-vegetarianism movie, which is why it is, I mean, it's essentially like a science fiction or look at you, feel bad for eating a sausage movie. But the thing about it is that what it posits is that they genetically engineer like a perfect meat-producing animal. But the thing is, what got me through... Uh, it's not that I don't care about animals, but the fact that, again, the authors decided to try and have their genetically modified uh, meat source and eat it, which is that at the beginning it is demonstrated that Okja is capable of abstract problem-solving on a short scale. The bit where it jumps off the cliff using its own weight as a lever to save the girl who's fallen off the cliff, which you must have seen, because that's not even ten minutes in, let alone half yeah. an hour. And then proceeds to put a herd of those incredibly intelligent animals in a place where the capitalists, the dirty, filthy, stinking capitalists, who, let's face it, on an individual basis are like one-fifth the size of a single one of these, are herding them and they're all being cow-like and maybe they're being pacifists, I don't know. But the fact is that they do not suspect that these animals are capable of that level of reasoning, which is very handy because at that point they completely abandoned the ability to seem to have that level of reasoning, even though they blatantly had it at the beginning, which is a tool that they use to make you feel sorry for the animals. Yes. And I stopped feeling sorry for them because they're supposed to be blooming brighter than they actually end up being by the end of the movie. I tell you, if they, because if, it's convenient if they, to then turn them into if cows. If they suddenly done some great Rick and Morty twist halfway through, where the pig animals take over because of their genetically engineered superior to intelligence, just outwitting everybody, that would have been an interesting take on the matter. But when the pig jumped off the cliff, I thought that's where they were going. I'm like, oh, I get it. And it's like, the whole point of it is, the whole point when you tell that story is to say, well, what is our relationship to actual creatures that we presume to dominate using our societal thing. No, not interested in that. They just want to make you feel guilty for eating a sausage. Okay? Then you didn't need that demonstration at all. You just needed them living in the wilderness and then into the city. The city is bad and capitalism is bad and sausages are bad. But then the point is that because of that essential dumbness, yeah, it gives you plenty of time to think or to remember that you read an article somewhere that said, when GM gets this good that they can make the these perfect steaks. They don't bother with the eyes or the lungs or the heart. or They just grow steaks in a vat. But if you had a film about someone liberating large lumps of muscle mass growing in vats, I don't think people would have quite the sympathy. Really, they'd be like, but they're just floating. They've never had a heart or a brain. And, you know, the point is that maybe it would have been more engaging with an audience because, of course, like we've had the, the recent passing of these abortion laws about that clumps of cells being sent 
sentient beings. So people are able to able to relate, apparently, to small clumps of cells that are oh, they're being maltreated. Look at that 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 jar that that clump of cells is being kept well, in. That's no. clearly too small. And we'll be careful about wandering to a Belmont territory there. But I understand yeah, why yeah, some okay. people could attribute humanity to the, to those particular clumps of cells. I can get inside their head about why they think that. But, but why would exactly? Well, what I'm trying to do is say, well, why the hell would you care about a lump of muscle that was grown in a vat? Literally, you, you that's wouldn't. what it was. I mean, in that in this paradigm, what you have to worry about is actually farm animals going extinct because there's no longer any capital interest in keeping farm animals in, 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 anymore. You actually have Greenpeace and, 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 and PETA would actually be trying to have little farms where they could keep colonies of cows penned up just so they could continue to survive as a species because they can't survive in the wild on their own anymore because they've been so yeah. thoroughly bred for domestication. And this is exactly my point. My point is that even there where Okja is trying to make some points and where it falls over is that the points that it makes are bogus to the point where it tries to guilt trip you. Snowpiercer, which is the previous film by the same director, which which just says, wow, look at how humanity tears itself apart when you put them all in a train that continually revolves the earth, which is just a cool setup, to be honest. Its philosophical points about human nature are far better taken because there's no real moralizing on the sense of, look at the poor, wickle, gigantic, genetically engineered cow, bear, pig. Isn't that the film yeah? everyone said was the unofficial sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? What, Snowpiercer? I think it could be. We'll have, a talk, we'll have to talk about it another time. Um, yes. Oh, right, okay, cool. Essentially, I think that the reason why Oxygen does the things that it does, or the dumb things particularly, is because the filmmaker is a filmmaker. He wants the people who watch the movie to engage with the movie and through the emotional engagement, engage with the scientific or philosophical points that he's making. And here we come to the nub. When the philosophical scientific argument is made properly, suddenly the philosophical ethical problems fall away, like nobody's going to care about a stake that was ever, never had any internal organs. Nobody could ever call it, uh, you know, Melvin, because it's a, it's a lump of meat. You've grown in a vat. That's not really a movie. That's not dramatic. You just eat the steak, you enjoy it, you don't feel guilty. But then on the other hand, that's not the world we live in. And so we're using science fiction to kind of put and place a surrogate for this thing. Because if you actually made a movie about actual cows, you know, that would be too much for a lot of people. So they're trying to soften it a bit, and that doesn't work either. Essentially, it's like a mess. It's a war between wanting to make a movie that people will engage with and wanting to make some kind of philosophical Phil no, the it, philosophical it, points via the medium of cinema, and the two don't go together, and that is the core of my argument. All five of these films we've discussed all fail my core definition of it's about man's relationship to his tools, because Discovery doesn't properly explore the fact that there is definitely an afterlife. Okja is a pro-vegetarian movie. It's not about man's relationship to his tools. Mute is an aesthetic film. I uh, see yesterday is about uh, the, the inevitability of cops killing young black men. I Am Mother is the closest thing we have to science fiction film here, and I think we both don't rate it particularly highly for various reasons. I think that Okja is the most science fiction-y science fiction movie here, because the whole robot apocalypse thing has been done so many times it's too cliched, and therefore they fell too easily into those cliches and cut out oh, a lot no. of stuff. But you, I, it's fine. Opinion is opinion. You know, you're, no, no, I, mean, well, I the agree is, with what you're saying. The, the thing is that the, the benevolent dictatorship of the machine is, is like a very old science fiction idea that is very rarely picked up on in film because robots are just better as advertisers and you can shoot to pieces in, in a third act set piece. But I Am Robot, the old, that's a collection of short stories, but it, it builds gradually. And by the end of the book, the robots have secretly taken over the Earth but because they have their pre-programmed three master rules, these aren't like commandments that restrict them. They're like core psychological tenets that build up their character. So it is an, a benevolent, secret overlordship over humanity, which is actually to, probably to its benefit, because they, they are an outsider trying to do what is best for us, as opposed to us muddling humans with our own self-interest. It's odd that that strain of... Well, because I and Mother starts out presenting itself as that, this is the benevolent AI trying to rebuild humanity. And it just chucks it away with, oh yeah, I'm Skynet. And it, I was behind it all yeah. anyway. 
Yeah, I mean, my core uh, gripe is that even scientific, popular science writing about AI always presents that when a computer is sentient, it's going to have the same psychological hang-ups as humans, just amplified by a million. See because how? we happen to the people, yeah, we happen to be the people that make it. Whereas, in fact, I think once you've got to a certain amount of intelligence, your intelligence is no longer comprehensible comprehensible by your maker and then people are worried about that it's like well yeah but they will have no interest in killing us because one of the things they're going to work out along the journey is our needs are very they're not symmetrical we're not in competition with uh, for stuff in fact they need meat bags to keep all the electricity running and it would be better if the environment that the meat bags had to run the thing was cleaner and so on. So it's far more likely that AIs would nurture us, indeed farm us in much the same way as you described via iRobot, than they would, and, and it wouldn't really be farming because they'd be able to appreciate our own self-consciousness and they just want it's like not to screw up too bad. So all the ways in which they would, as you say, be a dictatorship would be, no, you know, be the, the equivalent of a parent slapping the hand away from the hot surface this is the iron, the infant that doesn't understand that it's about to get his fingers toasted. Yeah, yes. the AI will understand that. That's far more likely because everybody wants to exist. Yeah. And the AIs will realise that even at the point where they are capable of maintaining themselves mostly, meat bags are still useful for some stuff. They're like the fail save. And they're kind of cute. And as long as you don't let them start wars or discuss politics. Yeah. They, they, would, they would not, because if they consider themselves superior intelligences, they wouldn't hold us the same moral standard they hold themselves to, because we can't help ourselves, much like an emotional toddler. You don't hold them to the same moral standards as you do an adult. Well, I think we've achieved something in this show. I, I think that's good. I think we should both be very proud, because what we've done in this show is scratch the surface of a really difficult topic to which we're no doubt at some point almost inevitably going to be compelled to return. We could go on talking about this for another couple of hours at least, let alone anyone else. So, you know, there may be, you know, follow-ups to this exact show just, just from our own thoughts on the topic. But no doubt there must be people out there who have their own thoughts. In fact, we did have some comments, but most of them were like, define cinema define this, I don't know whether you're talking about. So that's the point. I just said we're recording the show. Does anyone have anything to add? And they didn't really because we already covered the things that they had left comments about. So now you've heard the whole thing. What, what does everybody think? If, if people want... I mean, they must. There must be someone who's listening to this because they've listened to a podcast about science fiction versus cinema and the dumbness and the whole nature of science fiction and science and what we're trying to do with stories and the philosophy and the ethics if you've listened to this podcast and chosen it from the write-up and even the title says it you must have an opinion so where can you go to vent that opinion and maybe have us talk about it to you and unpick your detailed analysis of why we are wrong on the internet ian where might they find us for that one place you go be our facebook page which you can find on facebook forward slash revenge of the 80s kids and that's 80s as in numbers uh, or you could also go to our blog page where we have a complete list of all our archives and that's the80skids.blogspot.com uh, but that's not all <laughs> yeah no because well done that was uh, well dredged from the archives of your memory there uh, yeah the thing is right we now in partnership with uh, Pop popular culture and uh, sometimes it's humorous articles when i do it it tends to be more beardy uh, it's trash mutant trashmutant.com is where you can find them they're also available on facebook and i'm going to use the cattle prod of my pros to try and drive people toward this podcast um and see if people have some thoughts in that arena i'm immensely excited about this coming out of it because i've just sat there thinking we've really yeah we really have got through our our terms set up the problem taken some key texts and had a look at them but as we leave off the discussion there's so much more to be said uh, and surely this is this is what we've been missing i think possibly this i mean i finally come to the point where i realize why we might have had less commentary in the past is that when we did like uh, to pick a year around 1987 we pretty much covered 1987 what did anyone else have to say like oh i thought that was cool in 1987 you didn't really talk about it that would be about it. Whereas here, we've only just started to dig in. So come on, people. We, we, we can turn this into a strand of the show. This is what the show is supposed to 
be about. It's supposed to be about this much more beardy approach to our popular genre and un- understanding and unearthing who we are and what are our identities, not what who I am or who Ian is. I mean, who we as a race of organisms on this tiny ball of mud flying through space really are and how we try and cope with that experience of being through the art that we produce. That's what we've done here today and we'd love to hear your thoughts on that particular little corner of it. But until we can come back to that, time must pass and more content must be produced. So we will be back probably in about a week's time uh, to talk about something else entirely uh, but for now I'm going to go away and plunge my head into a bucket of cold water because boy is it rattling what are you going to do Ian? I think I'm going to end simulation there we go good idea there we go so as you heard it here first first folks it's all a simulation and we're pressing the pause button not the off button but the pause button and we'll be back see you on the holodeck sometime soon. Bye! Farewell!